again, Redeemer. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. We'll be, we'll be beginning in verse 8. As mentioned, I won't read the entire section because we'll be in Acts 6, 7, and a portion of 8. Rather, what I'll do is read everything but Stephen's sermon. It's the longest sermon in the book of Acts, and I'll commend that again to you maybe around the dinner table, but I will unpack the the theme and the thrust of it uh, while we're together. This is God's word. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and they disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and they seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, and he preaches from verse 1 all the way over to verse 53. And this is the result of his sermon in verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, uh, we turn our hearts to your word. And we ask for insight and wisdom and soft hearts. Father, would we not be like those in our passage this morning who were hard-hearted and stiff-necked, though the word of God was faithfully expounded, they would not turn and amend their ways. Father, make us on the other side of the history in the Bible. Make us like those who receive the implanted word with meekness who hear it, who treasure it, who store it in our hearts, and then who obey it. May this be so from the preacher down to the pew. 
I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines inflection point as a moment of significant change, a turning point. Inflection points can happen in human life. Maybe you're in your first year of college and you don't do well one semester and it's sobering when you get the news that you may lose your scholarship, you may not be able to return. It's an inflection point where you get things into gear and you crack down on study habits and you do well, right? It's an inflection point. That, that one semester and the, the repercussions of lack of discipline ends up working out to change the trajectory of your school. It, it, it happens when we have maybe near-death experiences and we survive them and the grass is greener and the sun is brighter. It's in an inflection point in our lives where our lives are changed. It also happens with companies. Take the company Zoom, for example. Back a year and a half ago, Zoom stock was $62 a share in December of 2019. And in October of 2020, their stock price per share was $559. That's 800%. Now, the question that we have to ask when we see that is, what happened? What was the inflection point? You know what it was. It was COVID. When our world was shutting down and we were trying to figure out how do we work and how do we meet, Zoom did not have to get ready. They were ready, and they had technology available right then and there in the middle of a pandemic, and now their company is worth whatever it's worth, right? The company has been changed forever. In the same way, the chapter that we're reading in Acts is an inflection point. This chapter changes everything in the book of Acts. You see, prior to this chapter, everything that we see happening is happening where? In Jerusalem. And if you start turning the pages in the book of Acts, you're going to read about Samaria. You're going to read about this Ethiopian who happens to be in and around Israel, who takes the gospel back to Africa. You're going to read about churches in Antioch. You're going to even read and hear about the Apostle Paul who's preaching the gospel in Rome. That this is an inflection point. That everything in the rest of the book of Acts is changed because of this chapter. We might say that Stephen is living an inflectional life. He doesn't have to go and get ready. He is ready, and he lays down his life. And on the surface, it looks like death wins. We just, we read it, and there was great lamentation, and devout men buried his body. That if you only see that, then it looks like that's the end. It's not the end. It's the beginning of something beautiful. He outlives his life. His body goes into the ground. His soul goes to be with Christ. 
and what he did for Christ and the cause of Christ is remembered and sends ripple effects through the rest of this book. My question before you this morning, do you want to outlive your life? Or are you settled with this world? When the dirt is shoveled over your coffin, do you want that to be it? Or do you want to live in such a way that when the dirt is shoveled over your coffin and the world looks and says, that's the end, your Jesus looks and he laughs and he says, it's not. It's the beginning of something beautiful. I want to submit to you that we can, as God's image bearers, as those who've been remade after the image of Christ, you can outlive this earthly life. And I don't mean simply being with Jesus in spirit. I mean the works that you do here and now, right now, they continue to bear fruit. Continue to bear fruit. That's what I want for me. That's what I want for us. So what I want to show you this morning is that this is a real possibility. This isn't just restricted to Stephen. It's a real possibility for you and I. Then I want to show you the cost. It's going to cost you something. That if we want this type of life that's not wasted, that endures, then it costs us some things right here and right now. And I want to end and I want to show you the source and the reward, which providentially is the same. So let's, let's deal with this idea that this is a possibility that you can live an inflectional life, that you can outlive this earthly life. Now, if you only look at this passage, then you will not see it. So if we were to get a telescope and telescope out of Acts 6, 7, and 8, it amazes me that the author Luke will not let us forget about Stephen. It looks like, man, he's buried, boom, we're on to somebody new. But if you step back and read the whole book, Luke says, no, no, no. Now, near the end of the book in Acts 22, verses 19 through 21, this is the Apostle Paul who's recounting his life before Jesus what he was doing around the time when he was converted, and then this commissioning and this set-apartness that, that Jesus comes and sets him apart to be the prophet to the Gentiles. This is what Paul himself writes. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and I beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your servant, was being shed, I myself was standing by, and I was approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And then the Lord said to me, you must go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. This Saul that you see right here, who's holding the garments of the men who stoned Stephen, he never, ever, ever forgot about that moment. Ever. Stephen's life continues. Acts 11 now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. You hear that? 
There's a persecution that happens right here, and the persecution that happens right here sends people to go plant churches. Look at our text this morning, verse 1 of chapter 8. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And so next week we'll look at Philip, who was one of the seven. He leaves and goes to Samaria. And the week after that, he is sent by the Spirit to this watering hole, and this African is reading from Isaiah 53 and doesn't know who Isaiah is talking about. And Philip, the one who leaves because of persecution, preaches the gospel to this African, and this African goes back to Africa as a convert to Jesus. And so, this is apologetics. When people say Christianity is the white man's religion, you hold up Acts. And you say, no, my friend, you've you've been deceived. Do you not see that Christianity is not a white man's religion? It is what God is doing to reconcile the world to himself and ethnicity and language and what continent you live on and what culture you embrace. You don't get an up because you're one group. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Do you know how they get to the ends of the earth in the book of Acts? They get to the ends of the earth in the book of Acts. Because of this. So there's a theory and the theory says that we are seven degrees, I mean, six degrees separated from anyone in the world. So think of somebody. All right, I think of LeBron James. Right, that's, that's like the first person that comes in my mind. I'm sorry, right? To test the theory, I said, okay, let me do some thinking. And it hit me. One of my best friends, whose dad is my daughter's tennis coach. His daughter is married to a a guy who's from Jackson, who was the manager of another NBA player named Mo Williams that we call Peanut, growing up around Jackson, who plays, played on the team with LeBron, who brought LeBron to Jackson. You see that? I'm like five steps from LeBron James. If you read the book of Acts, there is no one beyond five steps from Stephen. Test it. When the gospel goes to Rome, at the end of the book, through the work of the Apostle Paul, Paul remembers Stephen. When church planters go into Antioch, They're fleeing because of Stephen. When the gospel goes down into Africa, it's going through the Ethiopian, through Philip, who was a fellow deacon with Stephen. You see what's happening in the book of Acts? He's outliving his life. 
His body's in the ground, but the work that he does, his love for Jesus, his boldness to share his faith, it echoes not just into eternity, it echoes on earth. So I put the question before you again, Christian. Can you outlive your life? Can your missional living, can your opening your mouth, can your evangelism and your discipleship and raising your children and spreading the good news to your neighbors and talking about Jesus and your going and your coming, can it change the eternities of people? Yes. 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 Now, what's the cost? It's possible. What's the cost? I don't think it just happens. I think it's really easy to waste our lives. I think it's really easy to forget this. I suppose that one can live the opposite of an inflectional life. And that is a deflectional life where your life amounts to nothing and your time is wasted and you do damage to the kingdom of God. I I suppose that we could live that way. This is not the way of the cross. What does it cost us? It's going to cost us time in God's word. Before I look at what Stephen says, we ought to appreciate the fact that he could, on the stop of a dime, recount a coherent, unified, God-honoring, Christ-exalting, accurate, truthful, captivating message that summarizes the big picture of the entire Word of God. That by the time Stephen is done, He's talked to us about Moses and Abraham and circumcision and leaving his daddy's land and wanting a land of promise and being barren and the Lord giving him this covenant as a reminder, I will keep my promise to you. And then he he prophesies about when God's people will go into Egypt and his trifling brothers who sold Joseph into slavery and the famine that comes upon the land, and in the irony and beauty of God, God uses what they did for evil to bring about good, and he spares this family, and they grow in number, and about 400 years later, there's a new Pharaoh who doesn't know them, who persecutes them, and in the irony and providence of God, this new Pharaoh wants to stomp out all the male children, and God is like so, so gargantuan that he actually sends Moses to be raised in the home of the dude who wants to murder them. And Moses who brings him out and the wayward generation and Moses's words Don't look at me, look past me because a prophet greater than me is coming to him you should listen to. And when they get into the land and they are a people and they 
have a place and they are experiencing God's protection. God's presence will dwell among them in tabernacle and temple. But then in temple, God says, hey, be careful because how can the creator who is above creation really dwell in things made by creatures? And so, so what Stephen does through this masterful sermon is to say someone greater than Moses is coming and a temple greater than the one built by Solomon is coming. He's able to just do this on the stop of a dime. How? God's word. If we're going to live lives that that, that echo into here and eternity. If we're going to outlive this life, and it's going to have to be from the bread that is not human bread. It's going to have to be feeding on the word of God. It means it's going to cost us. It's going to cost us time doing this on our phone, scrolling and liking. It's going to cost us an extra 30 minutes of sleep. It's going to cost us things in order to grow in wisdom and fear and love for the Lord. We don't just stumble into this type of life. That it's effort, it's work, and it's worthy work. It's good work. It's good joy. It'll cost us real love for people. You notice how the sermon starts off. Look at how he addresses them. Chapter 7, verse 1, And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. That might not sound like an endearing greeting, but it is, especially when you understand how trifling they had been. Did you hear what they did to him? These was his homeboys. That there was a synagogue of the freedmen, and he tells us where the residents of this synagogue were from, and so we deduce that they were Greek-speak. This was a Greek-speaking synagogue, and, and the synagogue of the freedmen probably means that this was a synagogue that was established for Greek-speaking Jews who had been hauled off perhaps 60 years before Jesus came. They had now relocated. Their chief language was Greek. And therefore, they established a synagogue right there under the oversight of the religious leaders. This is probably the synagogue that Stephen himself grew up in. And so all of a sudden, Stephen is converted to Christianity. He is preaching the fulfillment of everything in Christ, and they are jealous. And so they accuse him of blasphemy. He's blaspheming against Moses. He's blaspheming against the law. He's blaspheming against God. He's blaspheming against our culture. And they stir up a crowd who go and arrest him and seize him. And this crowd takes him to the scribes and the elders and the religious leaders, and they take him to the Sanhedrin. And now brother is like locked down on trial because they're trifling. And he greets them. Fathers and brothers. That's not what I'm calling them if I'm in my flesh, right? But look at how it ends. And I think this is a bookend in the text. Chapter 7, verse 59 through 60. And they were stoning Stephen. 
And he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. That's the last thing out of his mouth. Doesn't that sound like somebody else who was on a cross who said, Lord, forgive them. They know not what they do. That is loving an enemy. That is love. Where even as he is dying, he is praying for the people who are hurling rocks at him. That's love. And he is imaging the way Jesus died. It's going to cost us love. We don't demonize. We see image bearers as image bearers. And I want to make the case to you that when we love God's word and see his glory and we love people, that the result of that is not apathy when they are in their sin. The result is not apathy. The result is we are apologists. We're apologists. Well, what is that? Dr. Eric Mason has a book called Urban Apologetics. And in the book, this is what Eric Mason says. Apologetics is a term coined from 1 Peter 3, 15. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense. That word for defense in the Greek is where we get the word apologetics from to anyone who asks for a reason of the hope that is in you. He goes on to write, Jude also says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. So what are we defending in apologetics? We are defending the faith given to us. So what is the faith? Justification by faith alone in Christ alone. The sufficiency of the atoning and finished work of Jesus Christ. The oneness and the distinctness of the three persons in the one Godhead. The sufficiency of God's word. The reality of eternal punishment. The reality of the present and coming fullness of God's kingdom. So what Dr. Mason is saying is that as we love people, and I'm not talking about loving and feeling, loving indeed, and as we are mesmerized and captivated by the glory of God and the wrath of God and the holiness of God and the truthfulness of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God and the beauty of Jesus, that as these two things com are combined, that when we see people who distort this over here, that it, we're not apathetic, we defend and we contend. And that's the shape of his sermon. His whole sermon is shaped by their false charges. They said that he's blaspheming against Moses, against the temple, against the land, against God. And Stephen's whole sermon is about Moses and the temple and the place and the one coming greater than Moses and the temple greater than Moses's. Notice that he doesn't start with creation 
because the people he's witnessing to don't have an issue with creation. He doesn't even defend the truthfulness of Scripture because the people he's defending the gospel against already believe in the truthfulness of Scripture. This isn't canned evangelism. His whole sermon is rooted in their error, which means to know their error, we have to do the hard work of listening. And once we listen, and from the well of what we know, because we've been in the word, once we hear what's not in step with the word, coming from the mouth of people not living in step with the word, then we take from that massive well of our biblical knowledge, and we bring the truth to bear upon their unique circumstances. That's what, Pete, that's what Stephen is doing here. And his sermon, y'all, it is beautiful. And so if you have to reason with someone who is black and says Christianity is the white man's religion, don't brush that off like that's not something important that has to be dealt with. No, that's a barrier. And Stephen would say, lean into that. Or I don't like the gospel because this is what it says about women. Don't brush it off. Like lean into it. And he leans into the areas of their blindness. You say I'm undermining Moses, let me reason with you from a book that Moses wrote. We're gonna go all the way back to Genesis. And here's the theme, God from Abraham promised a people from this man and his wife who could not conceive. And to validate that, God says, I'm going to give you a covenant of circumcision, and I'm going to keep my covenant to you. And every time you go to the restroom, you're going to be reminded that I'm faithful. And there's prophecy there, and it won't always look good because you're going to go into Egypt, and under the cover of Pharaoh, you're going to grow and blossom and flourish. And by the way, how you're going to get there, it's going it's to be because of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob has these sons. And these sons sold one son, Joseph, into Egypt. And you go into Egypt and you think that that's the end of it, but it's not. I'm actually setting up something far bigger and greater than they could have ever imagined because they're going to get hungry. And they're going to have to go eat from the table of the one that they sold off for dead. And when you go there under his cover, you're going to grow and blossom. That's how you're going to turn into a mighty nation because you're going to do it right in Egypt. And then I'm so big that I'm going to send and raise up a deliverer and I'm going to have him raised in the house of the man who wants to kill him. And then he will bring you out. And I can get you out of Egypt, but it's going to be so hard to get Egypt out of your heart. And you're going to be in the promised land or supposed to be on your way to the promised land. But because of your hardness of heart, I leave you there. I make you wonder because you desire Egypt more than me. And that generation would die. And Joshua will be raised up. And you will make it into the land. And you are a people. You now have a place. And my presence is with you. It was with you in tabernacle. Now you have King David who wants to build temple, but he got too much blood on his hand. I'm going to build him a house through him, and I'm going to let his son build a house. But even as you, Solomon builds his house, you, do you think I dwell in a tent or a temple made by human hands? 
And what Stephen does is point us to Jesus. Moses told you that there's a prophet coming after him that's greater than him. And you've been told in the word that there's a temple greater than the one built by human hands. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. I rest my case. And they didn't like that. Why? Because they were on the wrong side of history. They were more like the brothers who sold Joseph into slavery. They were more like the generation that rebelled and rejected its leader. And what Stephen says, you're stiff-necked and you're like them. And they didn't like that. And so they killed him. If we will live lives that outlive our own, it's going to cost us. Time with the living word in the written word. It will require us to look not after our own interests, but the interests of others. It will require us to be great listeners. It will require us to challenge the normal view of the American dream, which says work hard in your 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s and kick your feet up when you can get enough money and just sail into the sunset. John Piper in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, says that is a tragedy. He writes about this couple in February of 1998 who retired when he was 59, she was 51. They moved to Florida and now they cruise around on their 30-foot yacht playing softball and collecting seashells. He says, at first, when I read this, I thought that this might be a joke, but it wasn't. Tragically, this was their dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the great last work of your life be collecting seashells and playing softball. He says, imagine standing before Jesus and what in your hand is Jesus. Look at my seashells. That is a wasted life. And if we're going to live lives that echo into eternity and outlive ours, guess what? It's going to cost us. You can say bye-bye to that dream that America tries to sell you on. There's something beautiful and something much better. It'll cost us our prayers. It'll cost us being liked. It'll cost us time on our knees because we are not contending with flesh and blood, but rulers and principalities and powers in high places. It'll cost us. Which moves us into our last point. What's the source and the reward of this type of life? Where does it come from? I think the most important words in this section are right there in chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power. We're told that about Stephen before we're told anything else in this book. And this isn't the first time. If you turn over to last week when there was this issue with the widows, the disciples didn't say, hey, just find somebody who can cook. Or just find somebody who got the gift of administration and organization, put them over the the feeding of the widows. No, that's not what they said. 
they actually said back there, pick out from among you seven men of good repute who are full of the spirit and wisdom. Those are the ones that we will appoint. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. Look at chapter 7, verse 54, 55. They ground their teeth, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. In other words, because he is full of the Spirit and full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom, he is full of grace and full of power. And his opponents, though they are many, they are no match for what he's doing. You see the source of this type of inflectional life? It's not you and your own power and your own wisdom and your own strength. It's God's power, God's wisdom, God's strength. And humans can be full of all kind of stuff in the Bible, full of wrath, full of malice, full of envy, full of lawlessness, full of violence, full of blood. And I think this is why Paul prays all the time. I pray that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, bearing fruit in every good word. I pray that you might be filled with joy, filled with glory. I pray that you might be filled with the fullness of God. In other words, the apostle Paul sees, I see that humans are like vessels. We have the capacity to be full of evil and we have the capacity to be full of God and full of good. And what we're filled with will shape what we do. And so if we focus only on the doing, we're cutting ourselves off from the power thereof. The power for this type of life that pleases the Lord, that honors the Lord, it comes from the Lord. And so the right way to orient ourselves around the passage is to say, Lord, fill me. Change me refashion me continually after the image of your son. And that's a prayer that God answers on account of our union with Jesus. And providentially, the source is also the reward. Did you see what, Peter, what Stephen saw as he died? He says, I looked up and I saw the heavens and I saw the Son of Man at the right hand of God. And he says, Jesus, receive me. Guess what? He did. He gets to go and be with his Savior forever and ever and ever. He gets to enter into newness of joy. He gets to have his heart and his life finally and fully satisfied. He's the reward and he's the source of an inflectional life. Where do we start? I think we start by desiring this. 
We start by repenting and recalibrating our lives towards this. We, by the Spirit, endeavor to use our time differently. We meditate and feast upon the Word of God. We listen to people and give answers to the hope that we have. And we realize that the source is God and the reward is Christ. And a secondary reward is other people get to enjoy Him as well. And we start in our homes, defending the faith there, correcting errors there. And it moves out into your neighbors. It moves out to Sunday school. It moves out into growth groups. It moves out into this world. John Piper says, you don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not people who've mastered many things, but those who have been mastered by one great thing. If you want your life to count, if you want the ripple effect of pebbles you drop to become waves that reach the ends of the earth and roll into eternity, you don't need to have a high IQ, good looks or riches, come from a fine family or go to a fine school. Instead, you need to have a few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple and glorious thing or one great all embracing thing and be set on fire by it. That's what I want for us, to be set on fire by the glory of God in the face of Jesus. How many of you know the name Edward Kimball? Raise your hand. That's great. How many of you know the name of Dwight L. Moody? That's great. D.L. Moody is believed to have shared the gospel with one million people. One million. You know who led him to Christ? An average Sunday school teacher in a shoe store. That is outliving your life. May that be us. Let's pray. Father, we bless you and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you will fill us with all wisdom and power and knowledge that we might be people who outlive our earthly lives, that we might be people who give the answers of the hope that we have. Forgive us, Lord, for the ways in which we're distracted and forgetful. Allow today to be a day where we renew and endeavor a new obedience to the glory of Jesus. I pray this in his name. Amen.